0: Welcome to Brain and We are delighted to be joined by Brian Leiter, who is not only one of our favorite guests, but also one of the greatest supporters of the show. Whenever one of our episodes takes off, it's because Brian's posted it on the Leiter Reports. And we are going to be talking about quite a spicy topic, which is Supreme Court and abortions. We're gonna be talking about Roe and we're gonna be talking about Dobbs. Brian, would you like to start with a thought experiment?
1: So I'm gonna start with the, a kind of philosophically abstract thought experiment, but it's one I think that will ultimately is relevant to what's going on in, in Dobbs and the general philosophical question about the moral permissibility of abortion. Suppose you're faced with the choice of saving the life of one day old zygote, all right? so fertilized egg in popular parlance, or the life of a 25-year-old human being. And the question is, what's the moral status, moral question involved in that choice? Now, one possibility is of course, that they both have an equal moral claim to live, right? Such that assuming there's a moral duty to save life, there's a genuine moral conflict here about what to do. Another possibility is that the one day Zygote doesn't have any rights, and certainly doesn't have any rights that could possibly compete with the rights to life of the 25 year old person. In that case, the only morally correct thing to do would be to save the 25-year-old person. As we'll see, there is one kind of anti-abortion position that views this thought experiment as presenting a genuine moral conflict, that it really isn't clear that you should save the 25-year-old rather than the one-day-old zygote. that their moral status and their moral claims are completely equivalent, Now, that's not my view. And as it turns out, it's Pretty clearly not most people's views, but it is, I think, an intuition that underlies an important aspect of the anti-abortion position, which you know has new life breathed into it by the Dobbs decision, even though, just to be clear, Dobbs doesn't decide that one-day-old zygotes have a right to life. Dobbs only decides that there is no constitutional prohibition on banning the killing of a one-day-old zygote.
2: So I take it that we are in agreement that the one-day-old zygote doesn't have the same moral standing as the 25-year-old, not zygote, but person. But now the person who doesn't hold an extreme anti-abortion stance, but a moderate stance, they say abortions after a certain period in the womb. Let's say it's after the first trimester. That has the same moral status as the 25-year-old. This objection that you have doesn't apply there. It's avoided by less extreme anti-abortion styles.
1: I, I think that's correct. I mean, let's take it even a little bit further, right? I mean, if you're confronted, do you save the, the newborn baby or the 25-year-old? That's a morally hard case, I think, for most people. And if the baby hasn't been born but is in the third trimester, you're going to get slightly different views. That question genuinely arises in case where continuing the pregnancy will result in the death of the mother. And there the law generally and probably will continue to favor the mother. So it's starkest in the original hypothetical situation that that I propose. Part of the difficulty of the abortion issue is a general philosophical question framed just in terms of when does a right to life arrive on the scene? There are other ways of framing it in terms of the equality of women and issues we'll probably touch on. But just framed morally that way, the dilemma is precisely, Jason, what you identified, which is that we get the easy cases. The baby has a right to life. Infanticide is off the table. And then the challenge for the person favors abortion is to work backwards from that and explain where the line is supposed to be drawn. And my view is, is, is that I don't think there is actually a principal place to to draw on the line, that we have here a version of the old philosophical paradox of the heap. So if you don't mind, let, let me just say a, a little bit about that. So the paradox of the heap is if you have one grain of sand, that's not a heap of sand. And a heap of sand is just a whole lot of grades of sand. We don't know how many. And the paradox is, well, if you add enough, grains of sand to the one grain at some point you'll get a heap but we can't actually identify the point at which that one extra grain added to the ones we have turns it into a heap of sand so the concept of a heap of sand is kind of vague in this regard we just don't know when it moves from being just some grains of sand to being a heap of grain of sand and I think something very similar goes on in the abortion context. We have very strong intuitions about the baby case. And most people, I think, have very strong in- intuitions about the one day old Zygote case, which is it just doesn't have the same moral standing as. The baby or the person. But then we have the in between. Jason, you threw out the first trimester. I mentioned the third trimester, right? And there it gets very tricky. Right? The anti abortion people say, well, the issue is a kind of potentiality. The one day old psycho is a now well, a potentially going to be a 25 year old person unless murdered. And well, the difficulty with that is that the same thing is to be said about the semen that gets spilled on the floor. If instead it had been used to fertilize, the potential 25-year-old person in that scene where that ended up on the floor and never comes to be. And it gets very tricky to explain why fertilization somehow changes the situation from the standpoint of potentiality. And then on the flip side, if you try to explain why it's okay to kill the one-day-old zygote or the baby in the first trimester or the baby in the second there. Arguments for that often say, well, people don't apply a right to life unless they have certain characteristics, such as consciousness, the ability to reason perhaps, okay? And the problem is, as soon as you start trying to articulate which characteristics count, it becomes mysterious why infanticide isn't okay. And some philosophers like Michael Tooley bite that bullet, and they say the argument for abortion is also an argument for infanticide. And Nobody finds that position very appealing other than some professional philosophers who, as your show has often confirmed, will embrace any and all positions in logical space. But conversely, if you want to say potentiality is the issue, then you have the problem why contraception is any different than abortion. And of course, from a certain religious point of view, it isn't entirely different. So that's kind of our dilemma, why I think we can't come up with a principled line, even though we have powerful intuitions at the two extremes. And then the question is, where do we draw that particular line? And in effect, what Dobbs says, I mean, the nicest way to put what Dobbs says is it says it's up to the state legislatures where they want to draw that line, or whether they want to ban abortion altogether. Dobbs, of course, does not create a right to life for the one-day-old zygote. It says it's up to the political process. And the political process is, shall we say, sometimes a bit vexed, but that's where Dobbs leaves us in the United States.
0: So, that's the big point of departure from the Roe courts. In Roe, what you have is these nine judges saying, we think we have an answer. And our answer is in this particular rubric, we're basically going a draft legislation, we say up until I think 24 weeks, no problem whatsoever, you can have an abortion on demand. And after that, then you can take into account other factors like the health of the mother or the health of the child. But that's quite an unusual way to produce abortion rules so in south africa abortion was illegal up until 1996. we were run by an apartheid government strong christian nationalism strongly felt that abortion should be legal barring some rare exceptions and the change doesn't happen through a court process the change happens through legislation and our constitution by the way is very clear we have things like the rights to make choices for your reproductive health that you can't discriminate on the grounds of pregnancy our constitutional drafters are kind of quite keen on this notion of respecting women's reproductive rights and choice. But you don't have a court case that gets to abortion, you have the legislature deciding. And what you found was that there was some unhappiness at the time, there's a case that was run because we also have a right to life to say, well, the fetus has a right to life and therefore your abortion laws are unconstitutional, that fails. And now abortion is kind of uncontroversial in South Africa, as it is in Europe, where also the rules come through legislation. And the rules in Europe are something similar to South Africa's, which is up to 12 weeks, on demand, up to 20 weeks, but then you've got to start having stronger reasons. In South Africa, it's things like your economic status or your social status. And after that, then it's the life of the mother stuff. Yeah. And it seems that part of the difficulty with Roe and why abortion has been such a controversial topic in the States is that you can't undo this decision of the Supreme Court without going back to court. And so what do you do? You have to make sure that you appoint these judges. And so you have this 49-year struggle that catalyzes the political movement and changes the kind of landscape in that those that really care about this issue, often a lot of them being Christian evangelicals, say, well, the Republicans are our hope. They didn't used to be necessarily in that camp, but if we vote for them, they'll deliver. And eventually they do deliver. And now you have a situation where it's up to the legislators to decide, and I wonder is there a legitimacy question here? Is this the kind of thing that it's okay for courts to decide on? Is it the kind of thing where only legislators decide? Is it the case that the constitution was clear on this, like South Africa's constitution, or was there some ambiguity?
1: Okay, so you've asked about five enormous questions on which a dissertation could be written on each. And I mean they're important questions. So let me just try to hit some of the key points. First thing to say is going back to where you started, right? You are assuming that the Roe decision, which did in fact completely preempt political changes that were afoot in the United States, the late Justice Ginsburg, who was a more liberal member of the court and a strong champion of the rights of women and equality for women, had expressed the view that Roe may not have been the best way to do this, that a legislative evolution might have been better. And this involves a counterfactual question, right? Had it been done differently, would have been there have been less controversy? I'm not that confident about that and the reason i'm not that confident about that is because we can look at europe we can look at south africa but there's a factor here that's missing in the united states that makes us different which is that this is a very religious country right this is a very religious country the only correct and rationally defensible position is atheism and it is a minority position it's fair to say of the united states and I would be tarred and feathered at certain you know, bars for expressing that view. But then on top of that, it's not just that it's very religious. It's that about a third of the religiosity is of an extremely conservative kind. And again, I don't think this is true in South Africa. You'll correct me if I'm wrong about this. It's certainly not true in Europe. And what happened politically in the United States, the big change over the last 50 or 60, is, I like to say, Franklin Roosevelt was president from 1932 to 1980s in the sense that Roosevelt's kind of new deal, this sort of kind of social democratic vision that Roosevelt had prevailed and was shared by the Republican Eisenhower, it was shared by Nixon. It was shared by everyone. Reagan changed that, right? Around the same time, Thatcher changed main name. And one way Reagan did that is that the Reagan Republicans mobilized conservative religiosity for political purposes. And that's the big variable here, whether that wouldn't have produced as much political strife, in part because the Republicans wanted to mobilize people of conservative religious disposition. Many of them historically, prior to what was called the moral majority, this was Jerry Foul on evangelical preacher, his organization that was pro Reagan. Prior to that, many very conservative Christians just viewed politics as beneath their dignity, right? With their concerns, the soul, they're not going to get into politics. And that completely changed with Reagan. So it's hard to predict whether the legislative process might not have produced a better outcome. One of the ironies of Dobbs is we're going to find out because this is now being kicked back to all the state legislatures and it's probably going to have an effect on the midterm elections for the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives. Because one thing we've known all along is that it's only a small minority of the population that thinks one day old zygotes have a claim on a right for life and that the majority of the population favors a right to abortion under some circumstances. I think it's a small percentage that would endorse the Roe formula wholesale, but most people favor some choice in this matter. So what you describe as a South African rule, I suspect many people would find congenial here. I wouldn't be surprised if you've got a strong plurality that said up to 12 weeks or 15 weeks on demand. After that, some restrictions, there could be circumstances where it's permissible. Third trimester, very few if any exceptions, that kind of thing. I'm sure that would garner a fair bit of support. You also suggested Mark that you know because of Roe this decision you always had to go back to court to deal with. And in one way that's true though it is worth noting that the states have been chipping away at Roe for a very long time. Now they would typically be subjected to court challenges and every now and then the Supreme Court would step in and give the okay. And the big compromise was 1991's Casey decision, which declined to explicitly overrule Roe, though it did kind of toss out the three-trimester framework of Roe, and substituted a new framework, which is an undue burden on the right of the woman to choose to have an abortion. And that was compatible with lots of burdens, it turned out. What wasn't possible without Dobbs was a complete and total ban on abortion. You couldn't do that. And you arguably couldn't do even what Mississippi had proposed, which is a complete ban after 15 weeks. So, yes, it did have to go back to court. And now it really has been thrown back to the politics. And we'll have a laid out a test, at least in the United States, whether this results in a unprincipled but compromised resolution that a majority of people can live with. And that remains to be seen. Now, the final point you touched on, I do want to say something about it, is this question of legitimacy. And the legitimacy question is always tricky. The philosophers tend to construe it in terms of whether or not the actions of some branch of government are justifiable or morally defensible in some principle basis. But the whole history of the world, of course, shows us that it has nothing to do with the sociological sense of legitimacy, that unjust, indefensible regimes can nonetheless be perceived as legitimate. And something similar, I think, is true with the courts. There's two bodies of literature on perceptions of what I was calling the sociological legitimacy of the courts, that is will the people accept the authority of the courts. One empirical literature suggests that whether people view a court decision as legitimate turns entirely on whether they think the court reached the decision that comports with their moral and political views. And I think there's something to that. Another body of literature shows that at least for individuals in court, fairness of process dominates as the criteria of legitimacy so that even if they don't win as an individual litigant, if they feel they were heard and treated fairly, they will accept the outcome and say, okay, that's just the way it is. Now, I think in the abortion context, what's driving this is the first kind of sense of legitimacy. So for a certain portion of the population, the Dobbs course is now fully illegitimate because of this decision.
2: And for another portion of the population, the second last, we have a Supreme Court that really adheres to the law. Okay, so I'm not a pro-lifer, but I find myself just having to adopt this stance just to challenge you a bit. Okay, so... So if we take your position that the one-day-old zygote is not a person or at least doesn't have the same moral status as the 25-year-old, and we also agree that the baby has significant moral status and that committing infanticide is a very bad wrong, and we agree that it's vague where the moral status kicks in, somewhere between the one-day-old and the baby, does that not support an anti-abortion stance which says – At risk of committing murder, we should ban all abortions because it's happening somewhere in between there. We don't know where it is. So we better get rid of all abortions because all abortions could have the same status as infanticide. So doesn't it support that sort of anti-abortion stance? So
1: I'll tell you why I think the answer to that is no. I mean, I don't think rules should be organized around possible moral wrongs from the standpoint of a particular moral outlook. So I'm quite confident, given my moral starting points, that it's not wrong to kill one day old zygotes, it's not wrong to abort babies in the first trimester, it's probably not wrong to uh, morally wrong to abort them in the second trimester. I don't have firm views about that. I get a little more uneasy in the third trimester, but I can see it's more arguable there. Now, somebody with a different set of moral starting points, someone who thinks that life begins at conception, as they like to say, they have a good moral reason to prefer a total abortion ban. But I can't see how in a democratic polity where people are going to have conflicting moral views, we ought to adopt a rule on the basis of caution that is really just caution from one point of view and not a different moral point of view. So, So I don't think we get there with that kind of consideration because I don't think there's any risk whatsoever. Just like I don't think there's any risk God exists, I don't take Pascal's wager, I don't think there's any risk that it's some kind of moral abomination to kill
2: one-day-old zygotes or to abort babies in the first trimester of pregnancy. Okay, but then it's not entirely vague where the baby pops up or moral status pops up. I start
1: getting nervous around the late second, early third trimester. Though, even then, I certainly think there should be significant exceptions for the health of the mother, most obviously. Okay? But there we are in more, something that looks more like a moral conflict situation. I'm definitely not in favor of infanticide. I don't think it's terrific for philosophy to put on the table the
2: possibility that infanticide is okay. Do you think something bad happens when a zygote is aborted? So, yes, you haven't committed murder. Yes, It does not have the moral status of a baby or 25-year-old, but has something bad happened? And when we zoom out at that and place it into the context of over 60 million abortions happening since the 60s in the States, has something very bad happened when we look at that number collectively?
1: So my judgment is no, though the question is to what is the badness attaching? So you might think the fact that there is so much need for abortion in the United States reflects something pretty screwed up about education and social policy, right? So for example, that contraception isn't more easily widely available or that people aren't better educated about how to use it so that they don't need to undergo a surgical procedure the other ambiguity here is I can certainly imagine a woman deciding to have an abortion feeling that something bad has happened. But that's very much from their first-person perspective. And I have no quarrel with that if that's their judgment. And I've certainly known people who've had abortions and felt it was the correct thing to do, but also felt something bad had happened. But, you know, I do feel about zygotes for a good while into their existence, the same way I feel about a seed spilled on the floor. Total matter of moral indifference. No moral significance whatsoever. But I can't get an you know, argument why that's the only correct view about this because as I think a lot of moral judgments are fundamentally expressive about attitudes and we may not be able to rationally adjudicate. But that is kind of my intuitive starting point on this. So I would say no, nothing bad has, has happened just in virtue of the abortion.
0: So I think there might be a couple of moves that show that people have sympathies for a bad thing happening. The one might be someone who has a miscarriage at let's say 12 weeks, that they feel like they've suffered a loss and that they mourn the death of the potential or of the being itself. The other one is that you can imagine an artist like Marina Abramovich saying what I'm going to do is fall pregnant, deliberately, I'm going to buy sperm from the sperm bank until I get to whatever Brian's level of comfort is, so 12 weeks or 20 weeks, and then I'm going to have an abortion and I'm going to smear that abortion product onto a canvas and I'm going to do that ad finitum. And maybe once I get sick of making the art, I'm going to sell this to one of these fancy New York bakeries and they can stick it in the filling of the croissant. And you might think that a bad thing is happening a lot of people might think that you've done something sinister in doing this. It might be the case that we say the life of the 25-year-old has much more value than the life of the zygote, but we might think that nonetheless the prior fetus has some value and that there's it has some connection with human life and that's We should have some level of reluctance about baking it into pies or making art out of it. And if those that do are doing something wrong or bad things are happening.
1: Look, I share your intuition that there's something, I wouldn't say sinister, but there's something kind of gross about that. But I think it has to do with me a more general view that if someone were making art out of blood and guts dispensed with in surgery... If someone were making art out of semen that was spilled on the floor, there'd be a kind of feeling that there's something a little weird about it. And then when you get to the possibility of consuming it, I mean, there's a very strong intuition that consumption of anything derived from human beings is kind of gross. And I think that example is partly trading on that, but it does depend, of course, where you think the line is drawn. And as I admitted at the beginning, I don't have a principled reason to do that. I do think, and in a way this is a variation on Jason's question about being cautious, but the different direction, which is there is another very important moral interest at stake in the abortion debate that is downplayed in Dom, down, which is the, the full political and civil equality of women, because the issue of abortion and pregnancy only affects women, requiring forced pregnancy, which is what a total ban on abortion does, seems a kind of subjugation that involves a profound gender inequality. And those are a set of important moral interests too. And You might think in the spirit of caution that we ought to draw these lines in a way that don't have an adverse effect on another set of moral interests that are at stake here, namely the full political civil equality of women, not subjecting women to a certain kind of unwanted subjugation, a forced pregnancy, and things like that. And so that's another side of this that doesn't figure much either in Dobbs or even originally in 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 Roe itself. So that, I think, complicates also this question, where do we draw a line when we're unsure of, on the moral status question, as I think we have to be.
0: So to return to the merits of Dobbs, it seems that we could have a discussion about whether abortion should be... Legal or not, and that might depend on what the moral considerations are. Maybe not necessarily, you could have the two come apart. But it seems that there's a separate question as to given the rules of the game, given what the American Constitution looks like, does the court in Dobbs do the correct legal thing?
1: So the answer to that is no, but in a very precise sense they didn't reach the only outcome that was legally required. This is a case where the Dobbs outcome is perfectly legally defensible. The Roe outcome was legally defensible, though I agree with all the criticisms that go back to the time of Roe that it was definitely pushing the envelope on the discovery of new substantive rights, and we'll probably talk a little bit more about that. But let's just suppose Roe was wrongly decided as a matter of law, which I don't believe. But I see the argument for it because I think it was also indeterminate. Given the immediate precedence, it wasn't crazy that Roe found a right to abortion. But given the immediate precedence, they could have also perfectly correctly from the standpoint of the law concluded it didn't protect the right to abortion. The same thing I think has to be said about Dobbs, That is, it would have been perfectly appropriate legally. For the Dobbs Court to have taken the position that I gather that Chief Justice John Roberts was trying to round up votes for unsuccessfully, which was, a, again, a kind of Casey opinion that says there is a constitutionally protected right to abortion. The reason we're saying that is because of stare decisis considerations and reliance over a long period of time. But we, like the Casey Court, are throwing out the trimester regime from Roe, right? Because clearly the most dubious part of Roe wasn't the decision that the right of privacy, which had been discovered in 1965, also encompassed a right of a woman to choose to have an abortion. The most indefensible part was the then legislative specificity of the right that the court drafted. A more modest opinion would have found the right to abortion and maybe sketched out some broad parameters, maybe drew the line at 12 weeks like South Africa or 15 weeks like Mississippi and said there regulation is impermissible. So if the right means something. Right. And after that, it's for the legislative process to figure it out. And of course, they didn't do that. And that did make it very. But a perfectly coherent opinion could have been written in Dobbs along the lines of Casey, or if Dobbs could have just struck down the opinion of the Mississippi law altogether and said on stare decisis grounds, we need to leave this alone. Now, they didn't do that. They took a different course. And again, I don't think they took a legally incorrect course. People say, well, what about stare decisis? And everybody knows that stare decisis means something, but not a law. The court itself gives examples, right? Brown versus Board of Education, the most famous decision in the American constitutional canon. It involves severe disrespect for stereo decisis. Now, In Brown's case, I think it's easy because Plessy's position was totally morally abhorrent. But that's just a statement about the moral merits, not about stare decisis. There are examples where the court overturns itself in the space of three, four, five, six, seven years. Stare decisis loses some of its force there because the reliance hasn't been as great. But there was no doubt reliance in the interim on the right, so stare decisis doesn't get us that far with this decision. The short version of Dobbs is. Right? Should we ignore stare decisis and reverse Roe? Well, that depends on whether there was any legitimate constitutional basis for the right declared in Roe. And the Dobbs court says, no, there wasn't. And they do that by framing it in the conventional doctrinal terms that American constitutional law uses under the heading of what's called substantive due process. The 14th Amendment of the Constitution prohibits deprivation of life, liberty, or property without the due process of law. But the courts have said for a long time that some deprivations, there's no process that can make them acceptable. So this is what's called substantive due process, which sounds a bit oxymoronic. Clarence Thomas, who is the most conservative member of the Supreme Court probably in a century, goes further and he says, yes, it is oxymoronic and the whole doctrine should be abolished. Okay. Mm-hmm. But that's not the majority view in the The majority view is, okay, we have this doctrine, and we have developed a way in which we identify rights that deserve to be subsumed under liberty in the 14th Amendment, even though they are not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution. And of course, there has to be such a method, right? Because otherwise, there'd be no point to the reference in liberty in the 14th Amendment if all it meant was rights that were enumerated elsewhere. I mean, this is one of the oddities of the people say, well, abortion's never mentioned. Well, lots of things are never mentioned. And the framers of the Fourth Amendment were familiar with the Bill of Rights. They could have just said there could be no deprivation of an enumerated right right, without due process of law or set some understanding. But they didn't. They said liberty. So there's got to be some way of thinking about what counts as a liberty interest that can't be deprived. And the Dobbs Accord applies what is the standard doctrinal formulation, which is to ask whether the right is deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions and whether it is implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. Okay. Now, the concept of ordered liberty is not like the concept of bachelor. It does not admit of a clean analysis. It's a kind of vague concept, as the court sort of admits. And most of the work in the opinion is done by examining whether the right of abortion is deeply rooted in the nation's histories and traditions. And it's quite easy to say, no, it wasn't. And the Roe court itself didn't really claim otherwise. It made some references to history, but the Dobbs court says the references were inaccurate. I don't want to get into whether it was inaccurate or not. The crux of the Roe opinion, and this is where I think this was, legally speaking, the most vulnerable part of Dobbs. The crux of the Roe opinion was that the right to abortion followed from the right to privacy that the court had recognized in 1965 in a case called Griswold versus Connecticut. Griswold concerned the constitutionality of a Connecticut statute that criminalized the use of contraceptives by married couples. And Justice Douglas, an old legal realist, and we've talked about legal realism before, Justice Douglas, who was always a bit freewheeling on the court says that the right to privacy is to be found in the penumbra of the Bill of Rights. So the Bill of Rights prevents illegal searches and seizures and the government can't quarter soldiers in your home and it protects freedom of expression and freedom of thought in some sense. Right, so hovering around all this is privacy. And then Douglas invokes in Griswold the rather horrible specter of the Connecticut state troopers peering into the marital bedroom to see whether the couples, and that does sound pretty outrageous, right? Pretty outrageous. And then that right to privacy is then expanded to encompass the right of non-married couples. A few years later, it is 1969 after all. Hate ashbury woodstock they need to use contraceptives too. That's the precedent on which Roe is based. Mm-hmm. And you can ask the question, well, how does that relate it? Well, because what the court is saying is that The due process clause protects the liberty of people to make certain kinds of decisions about their sexual lives and reproduction. And in a way that fits with some of the much earlier decisions. 1941 case Skinner says there's a constitutional right to procreate. The state cannot involuntarily castrate someone, which they were in the habit of doing then. This is the heyday of eugenics. One of the few good things Adolf Hitler did for us was discredit eugenics. But prior to Hitler, eugenics was very fashionable in intellectual and elite circles, including progressive circles. It wasn't just reactionary. You go back to the 1920s and the courts said that due process protected the right of parents to send their children to private schools and to educate them in foreign languages. The foreign language at issue, this being the 1920s, was German, by the way, (laughs) not Spanish or Mandarin Chinese. But that right was established in the 1920s, again, under this rubric of substantive process. But some of these clearly, there's a thread connecting them. It's a thread about reproductive autonomy, decisions about sexuality. Do you want to reproduce? Do you want to be able to have sex without having children? Do you want to have control over decisions about whether to have a family, when to have a family. And I think that's how Roe thought about it. And I think it's important to realize that Roe was also very much a product of the women's movement and the movement for women's equality that began in the 1960s. And there was a clear, and it seems to me, correct perception that forced pregnancy of one half of the population was a kind of servitude and subjugation that was not compatible with full political and civil equality. So what does Dobbs say about the immediate precedent? Dobbs. Doesn't say a lot. Dobbs just says they're not relevant because, unlike the abortion context, they don't involve potential life. Mm -hmm. They don't involve potential life. And that strikes me as odd in a couple of ways, one of which goes back to where we started our conversation, which is that it presupposes contraception, which interferes with the ability of a particular sperm and a particular egg to form a zygote, isn't interfering with potential life. Sure, it looks like it is. It's very hard for me to see what the principal distinction is supposed to be. And then, of course, some of the other decisions, like the decisions about the education and schooling of children. They assign the parents very substantial rights to decide not about potential life, but about the direction, education, and upbringing of actual lives. So Dobbs makes pretty quick work of the prisoner, and I'm not sure that's particularly persuasive, but I understand their argument. Which brings me back to the, the baseline issue here, which is I do think as often happens in constitutional law in the United States. I don't wanna say this is always true of constitutional law in all systems because I think norms of interpretation and norms of adjudication differ between systems. But often in the United States, we are in the domain of legal indeterminacy. That is, there are good, legitimate, responsible legal arguments that can be given on both sides of the question. So Dobbs adopted the anti-abortion side, the anti Roe side. But they could just as well have done what Casey did, or they could have just as well deferred to stare decisis. All those seem to me defensible positions. And then we get to the question all legal realists ask, which is why did they opt for the legal argument they opted for? And there, I think there's no way to escape the fact that we are dealing with a majority that consisted of five fairly conservative Catholics, one of whom was brought up as a conservative Catholic and became an Episcopalian but the other four who are currently practicing conservative Catholics. And I don't think there's any way to ultimately explain the decision without attending to that fact, because if you are brought up as a conservative Catholic, you will view abortion as a sin, right? As a very grave moral wrong, because life really does begin at conception, right? God has put the spark in, as it were. And so this is pretty serious moral wrongdoing. And if that's the kind of background moral intuition, right? It's not surprising that you're going to be very skeptical about arguments that say there's a constitutional right to do this morally grave wrong. In a way, Jason, it's a version of your earlier reading, sotto voce, right? They don't say this, but it's like the least we can do here, right? Is not sanctified in the constitution. Now. To be fair to the conservative Catholics, they didn't write the opinion that reactionary Catholics like John Finnis wanted them to write, which was an opinion saying that the zygote is a person with full rights, and therefore, as a constitutional matter, abortion is always illegal. Now, the reason they didn't write that opinion, of course, is that back to legitimacy, that would have been the end of the Supreme Court. There would have been just massive defiance of that massive defiance, right, in all the states that have supported abortion rights. So they couldn't go there. And the arguments for going there weren't particularly compelling, are But Dobbs could have just been Casey number two, that is upholding Mississippi, making clear that the trimester framework from Roe is dead, but upholding a right of a woman to choose an abortion without undue burdens, that mm-hmm. perfectly possible opinion. It could have been just pure stare decisis. Mississippi statutes unconstitutional under Roe and Casey, go home. Of course, the very fact that they granted, sir, on a case that looked to be clear was an indication that they planned to do something much more significant, which is overturn some of the precedents, in this case, both Roe and
2: Casey. So a question that I, let's say as an American citizen, which I'm not, but let's just say I were, I might ask, well, if there's more than one possible outcome to this judgment and all of those outcomes would be legally consistent yeah. and defensible and justifiable and rational, why should I accept any? So instead of in answer to you answered Mark's question, was the decision legally correct? You said, well, no, because there could have been others, but it wasn't more or less correct than the others. Surely we should focus on that. No. So so shouldn't we ask, well, if there were multiple possible outcomes? Why do we think that the law has any legitimacy or any kind of justifiability?
1: Good, I'm glad you raised that. I I think there was an ambiguity in my no answer. The answer is no, was it the only legally correct decision? No. Was it a legally correct decision in the sense that a decision that was supported by plausible legal reasons? Yes, right? And so would my version of KC2, right? The others would have been legally correct in that sense too. But that still leaves your question, obviously, Jason, on the table. So why should we accept the legitimacy of a decision by a court when there is another decision that also would have been legally correct? There are some jurisprudential views in which the answer is we should. That's Dworkin's view. Now, Dworkin, of course, thinks there's only one legally correct decision here, not the Dobbs decision. So he wouldn't have given my answer in the first place. Is Dobbs is Legally incorrect and morally incorrect. Indeed, it's legally incorrect because of its moral incorrectness. Because Dorgan had a way of mashing all these things together. So that's not my view. I mean, I think Dobbs is a morally bad decision, but that's got nothing to do with its legal correctness. It has to do with my moral views about the abortion question and about the immediate deleterious effects on the well-being of a lot of, especially poor women in many parts of the United States. Right? But that's separate from the question we're talking about. So let's suppose that. My view about this is correct, namely that in many cases, and frankly, in most of the cases that reach the U.S. Supreme Court, and in many of the cases that reach the appellate courts, there is more than one legally correct answer the court could reach. And as a result, the court is influenced by non-legal considerations and what decision it reaches. Why should we accept the legitimacy of those decisions? Here's what I think is the best reason, which is that it's very important to have institutionalized and final forms of dispute resolution for the sake of social peace. So this is basically a Hobbesian justification. Yes, there are two possible decisions the court could have reached and boy, I wish they had reached mine. But. What's really important is that they reach a decision that then is complied with by others. Otherwise we have social collapse. And that I think if legal indeterminacy is a facet of the American legal system, I think it's a facet of all legal systems, but to differing degrees. I think that's the best reason for nonetheless thinking the decisions are legitimate, even from a philosophical point of view. That is institutionalized forms of resolution of disputes that are final, and accepted as authoritative is a good, even when those decisions seem to us deficient. We know what regimes of self-help look like. I mean, the mafia is a regime of self-help. Nobody wants to live that way. Often the mafia guys don't want to live that way, but they're stuck. Okay, and it's precisely because they don't have the international sphere is the Hobbesian sphere. We have no institutionalized authoritative forms of dispute resolution. We have pretend institutionalized authoritative forms of dispute resolution. We don't have real ones. How do we know? Look what's going on in Ukraine or look what happened to Iraq in 2003. If there were actually institutionalized forms of dispute resolution, there would have been severe legal consequences for both of those in- infractions on international law. And so the international sphere is, again, shows us what the problems are with the Hobsey uh, state of nature. That's a reason to live with legal indeterminacy. It's also a reason, of course, to care about who your judges are and not just about their legal competence, but their moral and political views, which goes back to an issue we talked about last time. I think it's just indefensible not to ask Supreme Court justice to probe their general moral and political theoretical outlook, because they will have to draw on that in many different kinds of cases. And senators who are voting to confirm ought well, to know what that is. And the fact that we don't do that is, I think, a, a serious deficiency in the process. But it's connected to widespread misunderstanding of what it is of the Supreme Court does, what it is appellate courts do in the U.S. legal system. Now, whether the public at large would accept the Hobbesian rationale, that I cannot speak to since I am not an expert on the conditions of sociological legitimacy. But I would hope so. I would hope.
0: Yeah. There's something interesting in the pragmatic strain, as you say, that there's different constraints on a court. The one is, what does the law clearly say? The other one is, what would happen if you did something very controversial? What be the repercussions? Would it end the court, as you say? Would it cause a civil war? I mean, it seems to me that an interpretation that could have been made on the 14th Amendment would say, well, the rights to life, liberty, and property can't be limited unless it's done through due process. So you've got a substantive right to life and it starts at conception. And you can imagine an alternate history where that's what came out in Roe, that you yeah. have a total blanket ban on abortion. And a lot of people would be very upset and would have felt this court has granted rights that don't exist. And we think that this is anathema to the democratic process. And you should have let the states decide. And how dare you? And of course, what's interesting about that is that is kind of what the pro-lifers feel. They say you invented this right out of thin air and you've massacred 63 million babies. And this exactly. is unconscionable. And we've been very civil about it because we've taken 49 years to get the correct they judges.
1: They've blown <laughs> up a number of abortion clinics. They've murdered a number of abortion providers. They have it all been civil. But of course, given their moral views, it's not surprising that's what they did. The problem is that their moral views strike me as ludicrous. But if that's your moral view, right, it's John Brown and slavery. You know, what John Brown did was, in fact, perfectly intelligible. And most of us these days, it is moral how much higher level consensus would agree. Chattel slavery of human beings was grotesque. Taking up arms about it was perfectly justified. Okay. But yes, I am. I agree with you that there's a segment of the pro-zygote movement. I prefer pro-zygote because I think pro-life gives them too much, but we'll call it pro-life. There's a segment of the pro-life movement that looks at it exactly that way. So I'm gonna grant you that.
0: Yeah, we had Stephen Kirschner on the show to talk about something sort of mild like abortion. And one of the things he says, if you really take the pro-life view seriously, then killing the abortion providers seems perfectly morally justifiable. It's like killing the guy who's delivering Zyklon B to the gas chambers and you should, take that person out before they go and extinguish a bunch of human beings.
1: But the problem is, right, so it will be subjectively morally justifiable from those starting premises. But I think someone who has those premises and then ends up doing what they do is pretty morally depraved. So I don't want to get too much credence to this craziness, okay? And I do think at some level it really is craziness, right? I mean, the only people who think that Zygons have moral status. They're absolutely confident of that. We'll put aside, I'm sure you can find me a non-religious philosopher somewhere has made the argument. But in real life, they are all people who come out of certain sectarian religious traditions. And they base that belief on one kind of religious dogma or another. And since none of these religious dogmas are true, I find it hard to find be too sympathetic to the actions that, that,
2: that flow from them. So. Well, that is Kirchner's position is he's using it as a reductio. So, I mean, he's saying if you think that the zygote has the same moral status as a person, then not only is it permissible for you to go and kill some abortion doctors, but it is obligatory. It's like, it, it, what you're doing each day by watching people walk into the abortion clinic and doing nothing about it is equivalent to watching the Nazis march Jews into the, into the gas chambers.
1: So what I think that tells us is that since we know that most evangelical Christians and most conservative Catholics do not murder abortion providers and do not blow up abortion clinics, what it tells us is that their moral views, like most ordinary people's moral views, have ambiguities in it. That is, they think it's wrong. They think it involves the taking of a life. But I'll bet most of them don't think it's the same as the taking of the life of the 25-year-old in my original hypothetical. Or that if faced with the choice between their 25-year-old child and their three-day-old, just-conceived zygote, that one isn't more important than the other. That's my sense when I have had conversations, not rigorous philosophical conversations with people, is they do kind of recognize these distinctions. But they give more moral weight to the interests or the rights of the zygote then would someone didn't share those religious presuppositions that render intelligible the idea that the psychote really does have moral standing.
0: And It seems that anyone who's in favor of in vitro fertilization will say you implant eight fertilized eggs with an expectation that only two are going to survive. If I said to you, look, this is how adoptions work is that you grab eight kids, and then the ones that don't work out you can selectively and you kill, people would say, no, that's a moral horror show, but they're okay with in vitro because they recognize the difference between something in the process of becoming a baby and something that is a baby. Yeah,
1: uh, what an interesting example. It may also have something to do with the difference between acts and omissions which is a very difficult topic in philosophy. And it's one where people seem to have strong intuition, but it gets much harder to explain the basis for the intuitions. Now, it's tricky in vitro fertilization because there are some acts, but the consequence, as it were, namely that only one or two of the eggs will actually result in a child and the others will be lost even though they're fertilized. But that act isn't done by anyone. That's just nature running its course. And I think that's the kind of thing that pumps people's omission to missions. But you really haven't done any wrongful act, just set in process, a natural process, and then nature determines how it comes out. Yeah. I'm not saying that is a, a, a strong formal reasoning. I'm skeptical about actual mission distinctions in many contexts, but I sure understand the, the intuition. I think we've all learned that at one point or another in, in our moral education, such as they are. Mine was mostly the moral education.
2: I have a question that's tangential, but not unrelated and without consequences for the debate. So you mentioned when we're weighing the life of the fetus against the mother, we often support the mother's life as more yeah. valuable. Yeah. but. Once that baby is born, it seems like for a lot of people, that baby takes on even a greater moral status than the 25-year-old. And I've never quite understood that. For me, from a utilitarian perspective, that baby has to be fed a lot of utility before it can start producing utility like the 25-year-old can. And so as a utilitarian, I'd want to weigh in favor of the 25-year-old. But it seems like most people's intuitions go the other way.
1: Yeah, well, someone might think that's reductive utilitarianism, but I don't I that's I don't mean to press that point. I mean, look, I agree with you from the standpoint of a strict utilitarian moral theory, it is hardly obvious at all that if you had to choose between the baby and the 25-year-old, you shouldn't prefer the 25-year-old. I see that completely from the utilitarian point of view. But I think most people's moral views, I think moral views in general have a very strong affective or emotional component, and the crucial thing here is babies are cute. And they arouse very strong emotions. Whatever the explanation is, they arouse very strong emotions. And that's probably at the foundation, right, of if you're correct in describing the common moral attitudes, and you may be, I don't have a firm view about that. That's probably what's at the roots of that. But if you operate with a serious set of utilitarian principles, I agree with you, it's not obvious how we should think about that. But then, of course, you know, if we operate from a really strict set of utilitarian principles, we may end up with circumstances. This is the Peter Singer view, where it's actually quite appropriate to kill the baby, even when there's no choice to be made between the baby and a 25-year-old. Okay, This is, goes back to what we said earlier. This is what gets Peter Singer in trouble in Germany. It's that strange situation that some people, a lot of philosophy in the United States, they call him St. Peter, right? <laughs> because of the concern for non-human animals. <laughs> and then you go to other places, right? They think he's the devil. Right, Are you going to disable rights activists? They think he's the devil. But you know, I, I give Peter Singer credit for this. Always consistently draws out the consequences of his starting points. Now, whether that is also a virtue in life, not always clear to me. <laughs> That's a topic for a different show. <laughs>